UX Podcast is funded by me and Per, together with contributions we get from you, our listeners. If you'd like to contribute, you can do so financially, but also as a volunteer. We'd love your help to make sure we get our transcripts ready and published for each show in good time. So raise your hand and help us by emailing uxpodcast at uxpodcast.com. UX Podcast episode 222. I'm James Royal Lawson. And I'm Pat Axbom. And this is UX Podcast, balancing business, technology, and people every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden, with listeners in 189 countries around the world, from Granada to Morocco. Today's guests have been described as designers, strategy consultants, product managers, coaches, authors, speakers, writers, and founders. And together, they have written the books Lean UX and Sense and Respond, and more recently, they've also founded Sense and Respond Press, with the goal of bringing customer-centric, evidence-based decision-making and agility back into corporate cultures. Joining us to talk about culture, operations, agility, templates, deliverables, resilience, recipes, and self-sufficient teams, here are Jeff Gothelf and Josh Seiden. So, um, Jeff, Josh, Lean UX, it, it came out back in, well, 2013, I think, around yeah, about that first, time. first edition came out in, in March of 2013. Right. Um, and now, well, the follow-up book to that, I guess, is that you two did together is Sense and Respond. But first of all, tell us a little bit about the journey from the Lean UX book to Sense and Respond. So happy to happy to tell the story. You know, the, the book has been out now for six and a half years. We wrote a second edition about three years ago. Um, and as we've been, as the book has, the book has been successful, which is, which is amazing. And the, the work that we've been doing has hinged around the content in the book. And so we've collected feedback over the last six and a half years about the material and about how well it works and how well it doesn't work in some situations. But if you were to um, homogenize or boil down that feedback to kind of one core theme, the thing that we hear every single time we get in front of a new uh, client or new class or new workshop or coaching engagement is, we'd love to work this way, but my boss or my company won't let me work this way. We don't work this way. And so Josh and I saw that as an opportunity to have a, a conversation with the bosses. And that was really the, the, the birth of the sense and respond idea. And, and to be a little tongue in cheek about it, really the, the sense and respond book and the content that we've been working on for the last few years is the response to the feedback that we sensed from Lean UX. You know, the specific feedback that we were getting, you know, as Jeff said, people were saying the organization wasn't set up to work this way or my boss won't let me. And what we realized was that there, you know, Lean UX was a book that was filled with things that people, individual contributors and teams could do differently um, to work in a more agile way. But that there were just a lot of things that were out of the team's control. And those things needed to be, that, that context in which the teams were working, that needed to change. That was an organizational problem, an organizational design 
um, problem. And so it really it was a, a, a call to arms for managers to change the organizations, um, the, the machine, if you will, that makes the um, making product possible. So I love how that how you how you learned from the Lean UX book and, and what you learned from there that turned into the Sense and Respond book, essentially. Now that the Sense and Respond book has been out uh, a couple of years, what have you learned that you wish had been in it? And how are people responding to that in the sense that, great, now the organization is listening to us or is there something else we need to still be able to apply the Lean UX processes? Yeah, so, so I, th I think the conversations that we're having with leaders who have read Sense and Response. So our, look, our hope was that the people who read Lean UX would, would give Sense and Respond to their bosses. So that would be the beginning of the conversation. And we have seen that happen. The conversation that we're having with the leaders these days is broader because it's not as simple as saying, okay, well, I'm the VP or I'm the chief product officer. Go work in this new, modern, collaborative, customer-centric way. Um, there are a ton of cultural and operational dependencies in an organization to change if you really do want to work this way, not the least of which is things like incentives and performance management criteria and things like that. And so the conversations that we're having are broader. They're conversations about the agility of the entire business and the, the transformation of the entire organization, which is fascinating and interesting and hairy and complex and difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's organizational change at, that um, when it comes to the application of, of um, these kind of things, you're, you're, you're not talking about something that happens over a sprint or over kind of a couple of months. So, so I mean, yes, it is extremely complex. And I mean, you understand that it is. But how do you bring that down to where do we start? What's, where's, where's, where's the key to start, start untangling that mess? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that we realized, and, and I'll sort of answer your question in, in maybe two ways. The first is that um, our, our goal for Sense and Respond for that book was that it should be a high-level uh, book that was sort of making the case for change and to sort of explain in a kind of a broad directional sense what that change needed to be. Um, a lot of the feedback that we've gotten from that book has been, okay, cool, how do I do it? And the how do I do it problem is a lot more detailed, right? It's a lot more detailed than your question. Your first question was like, what do we wish was in that book? I, like, yeah. I don't, you can't fit how do we do it into just, you know, into that kind of book. And so that was in some ways the impetus for, you know, what Jeff and I have been do, working on next. I sometimes joke that it's, you know, it's our, it's, it's the third half of everything I do, which <laughs> is uh, a, a new publishing company that we've built called Sense and Respond Press. And um, we publish kind of short, practical how-to books on, ex on, on exactly this topic. Like, how do I make that, those changes? And so the books focus on product management and digital transformation and, and innovation. And there are a series of like small focused um, method books that managers can, our, our uh, hope was, I can read them on a flight from San Francisco to Seattle or from New York to Boston or from, you know, on the train from London to Paris and, and have a method that I can use in some kind of practical, tangible way to start uh, transforming the company. So that was the outcomes of our outputs. Um, that was one of the, the, um, the short books. 
uh, as part of that series. Exactly. Yeah. So, so one of the books, uh, the, the, the most recent book, uh, from the press, um, you know, we've got, we've got, uh, eight Jeff or nine books out now and eight, we've eight got, published oh, really? in, wow. Yeah. Eight published in half a dozen in, in some form of production. Hmm. Yeah. Our first book was actually Jeff's book about the, the, the difference or lack of difference between lean and agile and design thinking. Um, but then we've written books on how to, how to run innovation in, in large companies. Um, and when I say we, I, Ryan Jacoby, uh, we have fantastic authors. Um, a woman named Debbie Madden, uh, who runs a consulting firm in New York City, wrote a great book called Hire Women. Uh, we have a book by Tim Herbig uh, about how product managers need to be what he calls lateral leaders. So I, I'm not going to list them all. You, you can go to the website and see them. But, but so it's not just me and Jeff writing. We've got, um, in fact, our goal is that it's not us writing, but, but every once in a while we break down and write a book. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, my, my, I, I contributed one to the press called Outcomes Over Output, um, which uh, again is responding to this question that I'm hearing in my work, which is we love this idea of outcomes. We want to be more outcome focused, but it's difficult. Can you help us? And so that's really a big, it, it, you know, that, that kind of points to what Jeff was saying, which is that, you know, the change is not just a, oh, do this new thing. It, it actually, to be more outcome focused, you need to change the way you framework for your teams, right? Instead of telling them, make me a button, you have to tell them, achieve this result for the business. And so figuring out what that result should be, how to express it to the team, what's the right level of detail, how to, how to plan and manage and get visibility into that work, how to staff a team that works this way, how to coordinate outcomes across teams, a lot of issues there. And so that's what this book is about. I actually liked, um, I think in, um, in, in that particular book, Josh, you, you tweaked the, um, the Agile Manifesto didn't you? You did you change um, the first line of that from um, from from outputs to to outcomes? Yeah, the nerve of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I think you know the Agile Manifesto. You're you're referring to you know there's this piece of the Agile Manifesto that says you know our highest priority is is uh, to satisfy the cu customer with uh, I'm going to get the words wrong, but it's like you know frequent early. Uh, delivery of valuable software, yeah, and I think you know most most of us who work in the, in in this business now understand that um, agile is applicable to so much more than software, and that we really want to step back and say we want to deliver value early and often to our customers, and how do we do that? And so it's not only about making software. Um, sometimes it's not about making software at all. Um, it's about achieving this result. And so how do we, how do we broaden our focus um, to encompass, uh, to, to, to focus on delivering value, not just making a, a, a piece of running code? I, for me, I love how the actual, the publishing company is an example of a design solution intended to solve the problem of, you give a book to a manager, but they don't have time to read it. Uh, but you know, they have specific questions. You can hand them one of these books. They, they'll sort of have time to read that. And then they'll realize, oh, I need to read more of those books. You're, you're sort of tricking them into reading a full book <laughs> by reading, the, reading it in pieces. Uh, and then essentially you're getting your message across uh, by just giving it to them in those small, small chunks. 
Yeah, and, and look, that, that is not coincidental. That was born yeah. of research. So our background mm. is UX, we're UX designers, right? And, and the, the, the style of work that we advocate is customer-centric, right? So if we're going to build a new product or service for a specific target audience, let's go understand how to better serve that audience. And we went out and we, we created personas, you know, target personas of who we thought we were building this this press for. And then we went and we talked to those folks and, and we, we ran the research to understand whether our assumptions were right. And some of our assumptions were correct and some of them were, were not as correct. And that helped us really form a better uh, presentation and a better hypothesis for this content that we began to publish. But one of the things specifically that we learned was, and, and it really came from you know, we had a prototype. The prototype was the first version of lean versus agile versus design thinking, which I had I had uh, self-published just on my own as an experiment. And every time we put that size of a book into the hands of of a of somebody who matched our persona, uh, the first thing they would say would be something like, "Hmm, I might actually read this." You know, <laughs> and and to us that was validating. You know, and it was the length that they were speaking about. They said, "Look, this is thirty, forty, fifty pages." Like Josh said, I can get through this on a flight mm. or a commute or a train ride, and um, and that's far more realistic than a two hundred and fifty or three hundred page book. And so everything that we've done here has been research driven, has been experiment driven, driven, and most importantly, it's been customer centric because you know we 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 live the ideas that we teach. Mm. So okay, so if the um, if the book <laughs> is too long for managers to read, and and you say that you the, you can't fit in all the answers, of how you do sense and respond, how you actually put that into practice, we've now got a podcast, which I mean our interview is going to be like what twenty five minutes or so. How do we then boil down sense <laughs> and respond into an answer to a question on a podcast? <laughs> Josh. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's it's simple, guys. You just follow this recipe. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think one of the challenges is that um, you know organizations really want they want recipes because recipes give you the sort of um, they they let you dictate uh, everybody's moves from a kind of a, a central kind of command and control position and as as we try and increase agility we're trying to move away from command and control into more of an aligned organization where leadership is setting direction and um you know the 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 folks uh in the rest of the organization are who are closer to the work are sort of learning their way forward and and letting solutions emerge and that's, that's really hard and it's really counter to all of the instincts of leadership and it's counter to the structures that we set up. I mean, you know, starting with fundamental things like annual planning and budgeting, you know, like, like how do you know it's, it's, it's August 2019 and we're, we're going to come into the sort of annual planning season in Q4 now. How in the world am I going to know in October 2019 what I should be building in October 2020, you know? And so, so um, you know, we talk about we talk about kind of a principles-based approach in sense and respond, um, which uh, uh, are things like embrace continuous change. You know that that um, it, and 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 just just to just to kind of sit on that one principle for a second. That's the one that says, look, you won't actually know 
in October 2020 what you should be building. So you need to build resilient systems that are capable of sensing and <laughs> sensing and responding. And, 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 <laughs> and then in your organization, what does that actually mean? Because we can't come in here and, and anticipate all of the problems we're going to run into as we start to change. So, for example, you might be a consulting company. I worked with a consulting company recently that wants to work this way. But they write contracts in such a way that they promise their clients a specific set of deliverables. Right? In other words, we're going to make this stuff for you. And you... You really can't be agile when you're promising a specific set of deliverables. So, uh, so what do you do about that? Right? How do you start to change your contracting process? I can't tell you. All I know is that contract is setting a constraint that's limiting your agility. And so, so when I work with teams and when, when, when Jeff and I do this together, it's, it's about understanding like, what are the things that are limiting our agility and how do we design experiments and interventions to start removing those things and replacing them with new structures that might increase our agility. I think it's a great example of the contracting side of things because that, uh, you know, an agency or, or when you're agreeing to deliver something, um, there's two parties to a contract. It's, it's you and the customer. So the customer must have requested or agreed to that delivery. So, so there you've got that opportunity for a, for a dialogue, for a shared understanding of what you're trying to achieve. Exactly. They're in the same position where they're trying to manage their uncertainty, right? We're not sure if, if this vendor is going to be any good. And so we're going to manage our uncertainty about the quality of this vendor. And um, by, by specifying in great deal in a kind of old school command and control way, here's exactly what you're going to do. You know, I mean, there's other contractual arrangements. There's, there's you know, time and materials, fee for service, right? Um, the way we hire doctors and lawyers. We can do that. We're just not used to setting those, those kinds of commercial terms when we're purchasing software or design. I like how there's like a catch-22 here because we're saying, of course, there is no recipe. But what people are looking for when they read a book is we want the recipe. <laughs> so it's a recipe for not following the recipe. It's, you have to keep an open mind. You have to be open to the uncertainty. You're, you're always going to be surprised. I realize... You, you, I mean, you guys do a lot of teaching and workshops and and stuff as well. How do you help people get over that need or want to plan everything uh, and get them to be more like open-minded and listening to all everything that's going on and sort of sensing and responding to that instead of their plan that they thought they had? Look, we we, we like to to poop on recipes. To be honest, right? Recipes are fine as starting points, right? So if, you've, if, if you ever look at, uh, uh, you read any, certainly stuff that I've written and some, some interviews that I've done about, the, about SAFE, the scaled Agile framework, um, you won't hear me say too many nice things about it. But, but as, as a starting point, a recipe is fine. So if, you, if your organization is going to apply the scaled Agile framework as a starting point, not as the destination, then fine, right? You, you don't know where to start. You want, you want some kind of a step-by-step -step process to get you started. Great, there's Scrum, there's, there's Design Thinking, there's Lean Startup in the Enterprise, there's Lean UX, there's Safe, there's whatever, a Kanban, right? There are all these things. Um, use them as, as, a, as a recipe for a place to start. But then 
truly embrace the continuous improvement, uh, continuous learning, and the kind of inspect and adapt mantra of Scrum and Agile and so forth, and periodically retrospect. We've been doing this recipe now for a month. What's working? Well, these five things are working really well. Great. Let's keep doing them. What's not working? Well, it's really difficult for us to do these other three things. Okay, let's do them differently, and let's try that for a month, right? So as long as people use the recipes as a place to start and then evolve them to fit the unique needs, contexts, corporate politics, uh, industry, regulations and constraints, etc., of their business, that's perfectly okay, right? That's how organizations become more mature in process. The problems come when people apply those recipes wholesale as the destination and anybody who steps outside their little box in a diagram gets chastised or, or, or worse, perhaps, right? That's not agile. That's not safe. That's not scrum. That's not Kanban, whatever it is, right? I think that that's where we get into trouble with these recipes. And so starting points, yes, destinations, no. That, I think that's an excellent way of putting it. It makes me think of, because um, I work a lot with accessibility, you have the World Content Accessibility Guidelines, and people follow that. That's a perfect recipe. Uh, but it, that's not what makes websites accessible. What makes websites accessible is, of course, being able to listen to people with disabilities, including them in the work. Uh, so there's a, there's, some, there's a starting point to get an understanding of the problems we're facing. But then you have to actually do the real work of talking to people again. So yeah, mm -hmm. completely agree. Uh, there was something I I, uh, I picked up on in um, in the re respond part um, of of sense respond about um, you you suggest that um, self sufficient teams um, are part of the, um, the, the the a good way of working um, and that that intrigued me um, I like the idea of that can you say a little bit more about what what's what's a self how how does a self sufficient team work well. So the, the idea of a self-sufficient team is, you know, we, we talk a lot about, in, in Lean UX, we talk about small, cross-functional, co-located, self-sufficient teams. And, and that means that it's a, a, a team that has all of the capabilities they need um, to uh, plan, design, create, and deliver their work. Um, and now... And, and in other words, they're not, they, they don't have dependencies on, um, you know, other parts of the organization. They can right. make a thing, they can ship it. If it works, great, it lives. If it doesn't work, they can pull it back. The, the sort of fundamental notion here is that um, dependencies reduce agility, right? So you want to create these teams that have, um, you know, ideally, no dependencies on on external uh, external people. Um, it's hard to do. Uh, it may be actually impossible, but but that's kind of the the goal. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and so to do that, you need to kind of it, it starts to break down some of the silos in the organization. You 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 have to move the engineers and the designers and the and the testers and the product people. They actually have to sit together. Um, which, you know, sounds simple, but in big organizations, moving desks can be difficult, right? Um, you have to figure out in, uh, in regulated environments, you know, how, how are people going to ship um, 
when we've got this policy that everything gets three levels of uh, oversight and review from legal and compliance and blah, 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 right? Um, what, what can we do to limit or minimize or eliminate that dependency? Um, so it's, again, it's like, de depends on the organization, it's challenging. But, but the goal there is to have a team that can just act uh, and without intermediaries and, um, and act quickly. Yeah, no, I, I like when you're saying it's, it's uh, yeah, again, it's, uh, it's not a dogma. You don't have to be completely self-sufficient. But if you're striving to become more self-sufficient, then you will operate better. Yeah, and I think with all of this stuff, you know, it, we, I mean, we were just talking about recipes. And, like, you know, recipes, uh, to, to Jeff's point, that they're good starting points, they're the way that we kind of encode and hand off expertise. You know, if you don't know how to make clam chowder, right, here's a, here's a piece of paper. This is going to tell you how experts have figured out how to make clam chowder, right? Now go make it your own. It's, it, and, and I think what we miss sometimes in that are the principles behind the recipe. And so uh, self-sufficient teams, that's a recipe. What's the idea? What's the reason? And the, the reason is that um, cross-functional collaborative teams are better because they have more points of view. They, they, um, they create better solutions because they bring all these different points of view together. And they're, they're faster because they're not limited by um, dependencies. So they're, you know, again, dependencies limit Agile. And so when you start going back to like the reasons behind these recipes, that's when you can really start to make them your own in the organization. Yeah. So now I'm thinking, I'm thinking about baking now, of course. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, I, I, I do a, I do a, James, I, James bakes a lot. I do a fair bit of baking. <laughs> and, and, and that's exactly the same thing with the, the recipes that you, you, you mm. look, look around for the chowder or some, you know, some recipe for a cake and you think, oh, this sounds excellent. And then you start doing it and you think, no, this is not, no, I need to do this instead. I'm going to try doing that or, or this will suit my taste or my family's tastes yeah. better. Because mm. that's the thing, we're a bunch of individuals, just like organizations, I guess, are, are individual. That's, um, you know, one person can like, um, you know, lager, another person likes, um, you know, stout or, or porter or something. Very different and, taste. Yeah, and if you, think about, if you think about that analogy, James, like, you know, if you do a lot of baking, you're at a point where you can look at a recipe and kind of very quickly say, well, because I have a lot of experience here, I know how to bring myself into this recipe and I'm going to change this or I'm going to change that. And, um, but, a, a, you know, somebody who's new to baking wouldn't have that, that, that sort of all of that tacit knowledge that you've built up over your years of, of baking. And so is going to be more inclined to just stick to whatever the recipe said and wouldn't even know if, it, you know, this, 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 happened, um, this happens all the time, right? There's a, there's a typo in the recipe. And, and it, it says, you know, th this crazy amount of salt versus a normal amount of salt. And you go like, okay, well, the recipe says put in, you know, a cup of salt, <laughs> you know, instead of a teaspoon of salt. And uh, this thing tastes awful, you know. So, so having being able to bring that that um, that tacit knowledge, I would say that's another thing that's, and maybe that's um, uh, Jeff, you can comment on this, but I think it's one of the reasons why coaches are so valuable in transformations. Um, you know, agile coaches get a lot of they get a lot of grief online, but 
these are people who've, who've done this before and can see the trouble in the recipe and can also help you learn the principles behind these recipes. The good ones, the good ones. And so this is, this is the thing, right? And so I've worked or been, uh, you know, or, or have collaborated with or have been worked with organizations who use Agile coaches. And I find that the good ones who have seen the recipes evolve into useful methodologies inside organizations definitely want to have this conversation. But I've also, I've also met Agile coaches who are very staunch defenders of the recipe. And when, you know, you and I both take a very non-traditional uh, sort of non-purist view of the Agile processes and methodologies, and when you present a challenge to the recipe, there often comes up a big defense. Well, that's not Agile, right? Or that's, that's not Scrum or that's not how we do it, yeah. right? So I think that the, the more enlightened Agile coaches definitely get it, but I definitely come across those that don't. Yeah. I mean, there's just such a huge amount of common sense to all this, isn't there, really? Um, I mean, like, go back to the baking analogy. I mean, sometimes I bake stuff that I like, and I suspect no one else in my family will like, but I'll bake it anyway. And I end up with a, a huge pile of cookies or biscuits or something that I'm going to have to munch through over a few days because they, <laughs> they're not interested. Um, but okay, maybe next time I won't. I won't. Poor James. <laughs> exactly. Pity me. <laughs> but then but the next time I won't do that one I'll, I'll, or I'll change it. I'll tweak it another way because now I've confirmed that they're, they're not, they don't like it. And I already knew I, they probably wouldn't like it. Oh, this is interesting because I, I actually have a question I want to ask because it's, it's something that I come across a lot because I work in a lot of big projects in healthcare. You guys are saying that we need to put something in the market, but assume it will be wrong. <laughs> yeah. So we put something out, but there is never, ever any budget for something being wrong because that's when the projects end and, and maintenance takes over perhaps, but there's not like, how do we help people understand the importance of We'll, we will learn so much. That's our, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity to perfect the product after we actually put it out there. So Jeff and I ran a, a consulting firm for uh, a few years together and clients would come to us, uh, clients who were not in the software business, they would come to us and they would say, you know, we need an app or we need you to build a thing for us. We, we, and, and I would say to them, you know, you, you think you're buying a, a packaged solution that you can just kind of have, but you, you need to think about this as like, you're getting a puppy, <laughs> you know, and you, you're going to oh, be, you're, you're going to yeah. be taking care of this puppy for the next 15 years, you know? And so are you really prepared to take ownership of this, of this solution that you're buying? Because it's not a project in the traditional sense of like, we build a building and then we're, we have a building and we can dismiss the construction crew. Um, it's a product is, is a different way of thinking and organizing work. And it's a, it's an ongoing commitment. You don't ship it one and done. Um, and so really moving organ, this is one of the changes is that, that we talk about, um, that is one of the kinds of changes we talk about in sense and respond, which is that, that you embracing continuous change means, uh, it's not one and done. It's your, your, your first release is, is the first of many. Exactly. I feel like we have uh, a couple of new books for you to be writing on or <laughs> engaging someone to write now. Agile coaches and, and how to launch and learn, learn after launch and stuff like that. Because, I mean, I would, I would definitely want to read those. Uh, and, I, and, and there are so many good things to say about it. Well, I will tell you uh, that um, 
that I we've got books coming on one of those. Too early to talk more specifically about that. Oh, yeah. a, a cliffhanger! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this was awesome. Thank you for talking to us, uh, uh, and I hope we'll actually be able to talk about some more of your upcoming books uh, soon again. All right, terrific. Well, listen, thank you both for having us. Mm-hmm. It's always a pleasure to connect. Yes, thanks very much. This was great. So I really liked the analogy with baking because it was so easy for me to to visualize how you experiment when you're baking, and even when you're cooking, of course, with recipes once you've confidently made them X number of times and you know that these are the things that go into it, then you feel confident enough to start experimenting and that's how you build knowledge and experience. Yeah, you you make mistakes when Mm. when baking Mm. and cooking. you do experiment when doing stuff. Like I said, you maybe throw in a different ingredient or more of a certain mm. ingredient to see what happens. Um, but I think another thing that's that's fascinating is that you have you build up like a, a realm of knowledge within baking that you know, some of it's quite quite inherent. That's quite you know, quite obvious. You'd say yeah. there are certain things you don't do. Like if I'm if I'm thinking about what do I do with these cookies this time, I don't grab the nails. Yeah. And throw in and throw in a bunch of tacks or whatever into my baking. You know, mm. I'm not going to like break a bottle and throw a glass in. I, I understand mm. that there are there are certain experiments, certain limitations to 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 what I should do as part of my experimentation. Or these things I don't need to learn, I guess, because mm. you know mm. maybe I've picked up as a child or whatever, I don't know, picked up earlier in my career. Yeah. Um, mm. But yeah, it's a, it's a very very interesting analogy to to use the baking one. I think for very much about how we. Yeah, if you continue on that, I mean, if you if if I tell you to make chocolate muffins, then that's probably not enough information, or maybe it is, and 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 I say I want them with nuts, and then you start having to ask me, so who who are these muffins for? And that's when we start getting into what I really liked what Josh was saying about people specify deliverables when they're uh, doing proposals. So they're specifying, this is what we're going to give you. We're going to give you chocolate muffins with nuts and this and this and this. Uh, But along the way, as you're talking to the people who you're making the muffins for, you may realize you have to change Mm. that. And all of a sudden, the deliverables that you've written inside the proposal is wrong. Yeah. Exactly. That you, you're going to end up, you end up, you're going to end up shipping Mm. an experiment Mm. With 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 nuts in that could potentially yeah. cause allergic reactions to all the people that are eating them. Yeah, maybe exactly. Yeah, I like that because the client thought that everybody wanted oh, just, nuts. Oh, rather maybe the client didn't realize that mm. nuts could be a problem. Yeah, right. Exactly. There was they were not. The knowledge wasn't there. Yeah, exactly. To yeah. Oblivious to it, the knowledge wasn't there. Mm. Mm. So so yeah, yeah. it's um, embracing um, continuous change. Mm. Absolutely, and um, mm. shipping experiments and shipping things quickly because it's just you're never going to be finished. Excellent, mm. um, but you know we've still got to build up that knowledge and and keep hold of the knowledge and make sure we don't cause too much harm. Yeah, and how do you recognize the knowledge if you're someone buying these services? It's really hard. I mean, usually people just go look at look at that. They look the l- deliverables look the same in both proposals. One price is lower than the other. I'm going to go with the lower price, but well, within the higher price of the other proposal, there might be so much experience in realizing that we're going to be changing this along the way as we learn more. 
But even if you even if you mm. don't look at the kind of buying in this from ex, an external vendor and you look at in-house, yeah. Yeah. how 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 do you do it in-house? How do you how do you kind of um, you know bake your cakes um, without glassing mm-hmm. or nuts in? Yeah, I don't have a good answer for this. This is hard. Yeah. This adaptation of knowing that we have to change along the way. I think this is one of the most difficult things for us to both do, but also actually convince the rest of the organization on. Because if people are used to us, oh, so the UX people come in. They're the ones who do the customer journey maps. But at one point or another, we're going to realize, well, in this case, the best thing is not for us to do the customer journey map. And then someone's going to say, so why do we need you? Hmm. You need me because I was the one who realized that's not what we need right now. <laughs> we need to go. We need to go out and talk to people and do uh, user interviews first before even trying to do that customer journey map. Yeah. Uh, but that how our industry and actually how our profession does different things in different scenarios. I think that's what other people have trouble with understanding. How am I supposed to hire you if I don't know what you're going to be delivering? Is this? I think that's why we argue so much about what we do. Yeah, I, oh, I wonder if this is related to well, why we've seen such a growth in in-house teams. Mm-hmm. That that with with in-house teams, you you've internalized that issue or question that you've already reached. Right, you don't have to ask for it because the team will take. Yeah, care well, of you've it. reached that point in maturity yeah. where you've you've understood mm. that this is an important mm. part of your basic recipe that designers mm. or, or UX needs to be involved. Mm. Um, so you you bring that resource in house, and and yeah. then you you're you're trusting it to um, to make these decisions. And it's you know, as it's a continuous um, it's continuous improvement and an ongoing commitment. Um, the fact that you've bought into the the the, the idea of them these resources being needed um, mm. means that you don't necessarily maybe need to worry about exactly what they're delivering, maybe. Interesting, but now I'm being very, I'm being very mm-hmm. kind of like um, um, high level about what UX resource is. I mean, you know, yeah. we I know that there's people who are hired to produce, um, you know, prototypes or or kind of like sit there creating something maybe in, um, you know, uh, XD or 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 Figma or something. I mean, that is what you do um, as part of a a, a scaled process. Mm, exactly. I'm not sure we've answered any questions here, but it's it, you're problematizing things that are, that we need to be thinking about all the time, how we communicate these issues but this and how we take care of but them. But it's fine, Peck. I suppose in some way, mm-hmm. our outro today is is rather than it's kind of come with concrete advice, we're we're yeah. giving people the the ingredients to maybe work on their own recipe. Exactly. We are sensing, and the, the listeners now have to respond. Or re- or keep on researching, keep on digging. Hmm. <laughs> We don't have all the answers, Per. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> which is why we do have an answer in the form of a recommended listening after this episode, which would be episode 75, Principles of Agility with Dave Gray, which will bring you even more questions. Thanks for listening. Always a pleasure. A quick reminder, you can contribute to Funding UX Podcast by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support. Um, or you can send us an email and volunteer to help with our transcripts. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.
James, did you hear about the guy who who stole the calendar? Uh, no, but I, I didn't hear about the guy who stole the, stole a calendar. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he got twelve months. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs>